Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. Everything we do as a church is, as with most of the rest of life, currently happening online. We're not all in the same circumstances, but these days are not easy for most of us, so please know that we're here for you if you need any spiritual or emotional support at all. The Holy Spirit is not held back by coronavirus, and this current teaching series is our response to what we believe he's saying to us as a church. To expect more. God is at work, and he is powerful. We're praying that your faith, for his presence and power in your own life, will be raised as you listen today. Hey everyone, welcome to Bread. My name is Raul, and I'm so glad that you can join us. Welcome also to my kitchen. Um, If we've never met, I've been at Bread for about two years, and it's always exciting for me to get to teach. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our series on uh, Jesus' supernatural power. The last couple weeks, we've been looking at how Jesus demonstrates his power in Uh, various stories from the Gospels, and today we're going to be looking at specifically how Jesus demonstrates his power over nature and the elements. Um, So let's hand it off to Ashley to read our morning text from Matthew 21. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So I'll admit, this passage is pretty odd. But as always, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And Matthew's highlighting a very important aspect of Jesus' kingdom, which is how you and I get to participate in divine power within God's family. It's a very quick, here's what this passage is not. It's not Jesus bowling plants. I know what it looks like. Maybe you've seen the Ikea experiment, but that's not what's going on here. I'm pretty sure Jesus doesn't hold a grudge against any plant, except for maybe poison oak. But secondly, This passage is not a formula for answered prayer. It's not perfect faith plus certainty beyond a doubt equals answered prayer. There's something much deeper going on here that Jesus wants us to take away. Um, And lastly, this passage isn't meant to be taken literally. Jesus here at the end uses a figure of speech which we'll look at. But before that, a bit of context leading up to our passage Jesus had entered Jerusalem on a donkey, which marked the pinnacle of his ministry as he takes his kingdom message to the source of religious and social power for the Jewish people. And by this point, Jesus had become well known and those in power feeling a little bit uneasy about his methods and his message. But now that Jesus was on their turf, their capital, their place of security, they felt all the more threatened. And verse 10 actually says that they were shook. See, the people welcomed Jesus into the city, and Jesus hightails it for the temple. And 
Here we get that famous scene of Jesus disrupting the order, overturning tables, and the religious leaders are heated. Now, a bit on the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes. See, these characters weren't all that bad. At their best, they kept the religious order. They sought to pass down the story of God to the people so that they wouldn't forget who he is. And in many ways, they preserved culture. However, under Roman occupation, the area, that region, had become so unstable. Tensions were high, and the religious leaders were doing everything they can to keep Rome from completely obliterating everything they worked to preserve. You know that saying, give an inch and they'll take a mile? Well, the Pharisees and scribes were diligent to stay within that inch that Rome gave them. However, in doing so, most of the leaders lost their way. In trying to hold on to what they've got, to everything that they preserved, they squeezed the life out of the community and they kept it from flourishing. They put heavy burdens on the most vulnerable and compromised in other areas. This is why when Jesus walks into the temple, he's appalled. And in his righteous anger, he disrupts the, the order because... It had be, because the whole order had become a safety hub for the most corrupt while bankrupting the most vulnerable. So he disrupts the order and he demonstrates the kind of activity that the temple was intentionally for. He heals the broken. He heals the outcast. And this just frustrates the religious leaders who see Jesus as a threat to their way of life. And so this is the backdrop of what we're reading. Jesus walks into the tension and he brings disruption and he heals the broken. And so now onto our passage. So following this temple scene, Jesus um, approaches a fig tree which has leaves, this promising fruit. But when he shuffles through the leaves and looks in between the branches, he sees that it's empty, that there's no fruit. And in a few words, he curses the tree and it becomes dry and dead as a stick. And it's a, it's a picture of the empty worship that's happening in the temple. It's showy religion with no power and no substance. And so the disciples, as they're watching this, they're amazed. They're thinking, how is this possible? This went from a dense, leafy tree to a dry stick in an instant. You know, they've, they've seen Harry Potter and they're thinking to themselves, he used the forbidden spell. How is this? How, how, how did Jesus do this? You know, and how is a natural question to ask? You know, when I first heard that Teslas drive themselves, my initial question was, how can it drive itself? How is this possible? Or, or you know, when you see that, that impressive scene in a movie and you're thinking, how did they make that scene? We, we go to the behind-the-scene features, um, you know, when, back in the DVD days, and we look at how they, how they created that scene. Um, because how is a rational question to ask. And in the case of the disciples, it's one that they ought to have known the answer to. You know, they've, they've been behind the scenes with Jesus. And so this kind of activity isn't new to them. But I think it's funny that the disciples rarely get it. And I find myself relating to that. See, they've been with Jesus long enough. They've seen him do similar things throughout the gospel narrative. Jesus demonstrates his 
power over the elements. He turns water into wine. He walks on water. He calms the storm. He heals those with leprosy and other diseases. And in this story, he commands a fruitless tree to dry up. See, the Gospels are hinting at the fact that Jesus has power over what no human could ever control, which is nature and the elements. He has power to do so because he created it all. And while the disciples are concerned with how he did this, how Jesus withered the fig tree, Jesus brilliantly diverts their attention to what they really need to hear. Jesus is expanding their imagination of the kingdom to prepare the disciples for what they themselves will do. And what we find in the biblical story is that miracles like this don't have just one effect. It's not Jesus flexing his power on the elements, on this tree. Uh, There's a social effect as well. Jesus is using his power with intentionality and purpose. And in this story, the miracle isn't just in the withered fig tree. It's in the fact that Jesus offers to share his power with us. And we'll look at how this plays out in three points based off of what Jesus says in verse 21. So, classic three-point sermon. Point number one, we trust in God's goodness. Jesus says, I I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt. If you have faith and do not doubt. If you've been quarantined in LA, then chances are you've probably purchased some plants for your home. And one of the most discouraging things is bringing a plant home, and then within two hours, its leaves start drooping. And then within four hours, you notice a leaf falling off. And then the next morning, it's a dry stick. It's one of the saddest, most discouraging things. You're thinking, what is wrong with me? How can I not keep a plant alive for 12 hours? And What's funny is that in this story, the withered fig tree is actually an encouraging symbol. See, in in extending his supernatural power to wither the fig, Jesus is rejecting the injustices and corruption that's hurting the people because Jesus sees the people, meaning that he sees us and he looks out for the most vulnerable and for the least amongst us. And I find this moving because it shows us that Jesus doesn't accept oppression in any of its forms. And he actually grieves at the existence of these and he bids his church to side with the oppressed, with the most vulnerable. See here, the withered fig tree is a fate, is a picture of the fate that's coming for the systems and powers that oppress. That like the fig tree, they will wither away and die. As we pray, your kingdom come. And faith is a starting point because we're not supposed to do this alone. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says, if you have faith. The faith he's talking about is trust in God. It's trust that God is good and that he has good intentions for us. And not just us, but for our neighbors. See, the Greek word here for faith is pistis, which literally means reliance on God. It isn't just belief in God, but it's the conscious decision to rely on God and to trust that he is good. When I think about faith, I like to imagine myself approaching a chair 
As I sit on a chair, I'm choosing to rely on the chair to hold up the weight of my body. And you know, some chairs are more reliable than others. Um, but whenever we approach a chair to sit on it, we're actually practicing faith. We're actually practicing faith. We're putting our trust in the chair to hold up the weight of our bodies. And faith in God is very similar. Faith in God is relying on Him to hold up the weight of our lives with all of our complexities, all of our experiences, our emotions, our fears, our thoughts. We can trust God because He can bear the weight of it all. When the pandemic hit and things began to shut down, I realized what reliance on God actually looked like. See, I was laid off and um, my livelihood was shaken. I, I was scared and uncertain about how I would pay my rent, pay my bills, buy groceries. And I was especially concerned for my coworkers and, um, and just in general what this city would turn into. You know, we, as, as we saw, you know, grocery stores um, completely wiped, shelves empty. And at one point I remember thinking, do we need to like leave the city? Is, is this when we, is this, is, is this the time to move? Um, and in general, I just had this deep sense of fear and, and, uncom- and uh, just uncertainty and um, I wasn't comfortable. And I remember just around the time of everything shutting down, my, my mind would often shift to a survival mode where I would often think about me and, and, and my own at the expense of others. And it was in that moment when I realized, okay, I, this is when it counts. This is when my faith counts. This is when I have to look inwardly and see the depth of my faith. And in the midst of that fear and uncertainty and shifting thoughts, I, I once again saw that God was trustworthy, that he can bear the weight of my life. See, in April, when, when, when all of this started and shortly after I had gotten laid off, I got an email from my school's financial department, which is never something you want to receive. Um, and my heart sank because I thought, okay, I'm getting another bill. I'm getting bills from, for my program. Um, the worst timing. And when I opened up the email, I saw the word scholarship. Um, and I was relieved. The email had said that I was granted a scholarship for my grad program, and it was one that I did not apply for. It was given to me by anonymous donors, and at that moment, I remember just being emotionally overwhelmed. And I felt, I, I, I couldn't believe that money literally just fell, fell out of the sky, and I felt this overwhelming sense of, um, of just being seen by God. And, and, and I felt like God had heard me. I felt like God was, was looking after me. And I was reminded that Jesus is who he says he is, that he, he's capable of bearing the weight of my life. And, and, and that led me to trust him a little bit more. That led me to say, okay, God, you've got me and you're holding me up. See, he's capable of holding us. He's, he's capable of bearing the weight of our lives. And God ongoingly reminds me that, he could, that he's actually the one taking care of me. 
Sometimes I get into this mentality of thinking, I, I, I've got myself. I'm looking after myself. I'm the one bringing in uh, the money to provide for, for myself and, and, and for my family. But God ongoingly reminds me that, that that's not the case. That he's the one who's got me, even when I think I've got myself. And I, I think this is the process of the Christian life. It's slowly realizing how much we don't actually take care of ourselves, how much we don't actually got ourselves, but accepting that, but it's about accepting that reliance on God is a much better way. And that bit that says, do not doubt, is referring not to the existence of God, but to his goodness. And one translation uses the term hesitation. We don't have to hesitate when it comes to God because he's that good and that he has good intentions for us and he isn't going to pull the rug out from under us or trap us into a life that we dread. But God is after our good. And at Bread, this is foundational for everything we do, for how we worship, how we approach prayer, our motive for social justice. It all stems from understanding and knowing that God is indeed good that he's ridiculously kind, even when we do not deserve it. And that's what grace is. That's God's kindness extended even in the midst of our rebellion. And if we're honest with ourselves, this may have been a time when we've hesitated at the thought of God's goodness. You know, we've looked around, we've heard, uh, we've heard and seen of the unfolding events before us, and we're asking ourselves, is God good? Is God really good? And I've asked myself this question, and when I'm usually when I'm in my head about all of this, I find that in these moments that God draws close to me and that He invites me in again to once once again remind me of how sufficient He is, to remind me of how much He loves me. And in the midst of these questionable um, thoughts and doubts that God invites me in to remind me that he's good, to remind me that he's sufficient. And it's possible even in the midst of God, even in the midst of hardship to see that God is good because God doesn't flee. God doesn't hightail it to the next city. Um, God, God sticks around. And even when our minds try to rationalize what's happening, I think we're tempted to think that because of what's happening is bad or is negative, that it must reflect God's attitude towards us. But when we look at the life of Jesus, we see that that's not the case. We see that Jesus actually injects goodness and love and healing and peace into every situation rather than withholding it. And even more so, he sticks it through with us, even when everything in us wants to escape. See, rather than being discouraged and um, feeling the need to flee, Jesus calls us deeper into himself. He calls us deeper into himself to know that he's enough. And he wants us to know how much we're loved by him. And that those things that are overwhelming to us are not our problems alone to solve. That he invites us in to say, hey, trust me, lay your burdens down. I, you don't have to carry those all on your own. I can bear the weight of it all. 
and I'll walk alongside of you. See, this is the goodness of the God who is with us, and he wants to share his power with us. So point number two, the next thing Jesus says is, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree. And when I read this, I I stopped and I thought, wait a minute. Jesus is assuming we're going to do what he's done. And this stands in stark contrast with the belief that God hoards power. Instead, God is into giving it away. See, God wants to bring goodness about in our lives and in our neighborhoods. And he does this by sharing his power with us. It's his power given to us. Jesus' mind was soaked in the Old Testament scriptures in which the image of a fig tree uh, was very significant. You see, after the fall in Genesis, Adam and Eve, they cover themselves with fig leaves. Um, Israel is depicted as a fig tree. God's covering over his people is depicted as uh, the shade of a fig tree in a dry, deserted desert. See, in the scriptures, fig trees signified settling down, making one's home, getting established, and flourishing, not just in the terms of the individual, but as it relates to our communities. The original audience would have recalled the words of the prophets Micah and Zechariah, whose speech around the fig tree pointed to a time when God's kingdom would be further established. It reads this, Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. See, for a dry and deserted landscape prone to drought, this is an overwhelmingly good promise. Here, Jesus is making it known to his disciples that this vision of flourishing and sharing and community is coming to pass, not through the temple, but through himself, as he gives his power away to those who are open. And that's the key word, is open. It's those who say, sure, I'll take a chance on God. It's those who are willing. See, because God doesn't force himself upon anyone. He offers his power. He shares it. And if we're open to him, we can participate in all the good that his power brings because God's power is always for good. I love what Andy Crouch says. He says, power is a gift. And God intends for that gift to bring about a more flourishing community. The Bible calls this shalom. It's wholeness. It's well-being. It's flourishing. We can see neighbors reconciled, the shamed restored, the sick healed, the vulnerable cared for, families uh, healed, with all with the power that we're gifted. This is what God's power does. See, we've seen what can happen when power is misused or abused, but Jesus calls us to a better way. He calls us to give our power away, to share it for the sake of the most vulnerable and marginalized within our communities. And here's the thing is we don't have to feel threatened when power is distributed fairly. Because this is a place where everyone can play. 
And while mere human efforts can get us to make progress, the power that Jesus speaks of, the power that Jesus has in mind, is the power of the Holy Spirit. See, because only the Holy Spirit can bring about transformation in the most hopeless situations. When I was in youth ministry, one of the things I heard regularly as I met with students was this. They would say, if I just change my behavior, then God will accept me. Or if I just stop doing this, then I can be involved in church. And I think sometimes we get the order backwards. Sometimes we assume that transformation precedes relationship, but God is after relationship that produces transformation. It's, it's, it's His power that changes us. It's His relationship that, that moves us. See, we don't have to get good before coming to God. God is after His relationship, His power, His life being produced in us, which results in transformation. This is what the Holy Spirit does. This is what the Holy Spirit can bring even to deep embedded patterns of behavior and thinking which seem impossible to change. And these are the things that Jesus calls mountains. So point number three, we see transformation. Jesus then says, you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. Like I said, this isn't meant to be taken literally, not because God can't drop mountains into the sea. He can, but that's not the point. See, it's about an all-powerful God who shares his power with us, which enables us to do extraordinary and meaningful things in his strength. See, Jesus, while he's looking at Jerusalem, which is built on top of a mountain, he uses this figure of speech to say nothing is impossible. Because of Jesus, everything has potential for transformation. And as Alice mentioned last week, we live in this in-between time. Scholars call it the now and not yet, meaning that the kingdom is here, but it hasn't yet been fully realized. So when we pray for the impossible to happen or for transformation, sometimes it doesn't happen, but sometimes it does. However, it's worth living with this mindset that anything can happen, that, that, that the kingdom is here because the gospel is about the seemingly impossible becoming possible. And this passage reminds us that mountains can be moved, that systems can be shaken, that lives can be transformed. And if I'm honest with myself, I sometimes put God in a box. I put God in a box that restricts him to attending my selfish interests while making me comfortable. A box that restricts God to my benefit without making me uncomfortable. And the truth is that seeing God's supernatural power will make us uncomfortable. Because it's the kingdom that pushes up against our cultural norms. It pushes up against our predictive gatherings and our patterns of behavior. But even when we've made up our minds, sometimes God surprises us. And we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to be uncomfortable? Am I willing to be challenged to admit that maybe I'm wrong in order to experience the kingdom? This reminds me of a story I heard in college 
uh, back in the 20s, there was a preacher named Amy Semple McPherson who led a racially integrated church um, in Echo Park. And this church, this preacher, she drew a crowd, crowds of thousands. Um, and then, like today, female preachers face harsh criticisms. But on top of that, because she led a diverse community, this brought hostile attention. And during one particular service, as as she began to preach, the KKK showed up in full regalia. And they quietly made their way to the front row and took a seat. But then in the middle of the sermon, they got up and walked out. And moments later, the front row was again filled with, with men, but this time dressed in casual attire. And at the end of the service, as you know, things were wrapping up and uh, church members were cleaning, and Usher found the abandoned KKK uniforms in an alley nearby. Later, it would be known that the men who filled the front row in their casual wear were, in fact, the original clan members. But the hearts of these men began to change as they heard the gospel. Their hearts were softened so much so that they collectively abandoned the clan and returned to hear the gospel message because God's goodness is irresistible. And if I'm honest, sometimes I make my mind up about people. I make my mind up about people groups, and I often forget that change is possible even in the hardest of hearts, that God can spark transformation even in situations that may have seemed impossible to change. See, this is what the kingdom is about. The kingdom is about the impossible becoming possible. While I was on my mission, while I was on a missions trip in the rural area of Peru a few years back, we had gotten off these boats and were making our way into this village to drop off some food. And um, as we were doing so, we were followed by a man who kept shouting slurs at us. And the local guide he told us that this guy he couldn't be kept still, he couldn't be kept quiet, and that he would drink day and night. And as, as we were making our way, he kept disrupting our group. And I remember at one point, he tried to take the food that we were offering this village for himself. And in that moment, I was getting kind of annoyed. I was frustrated and I was like, somebody get this guy out of here. I had made up my mind about this guy and I overlooked him and I had assumed that I assumed that his behavior was beyond our help. Subconsciously, I had already rejected him. But as his behavior persisted, um, our guide noticed something. And he calmly and authoritatively turned to him, and in a gentle tone, he prayed, Leave him in Jesus' name. And suddenly the man was calm. It was like day and night, like somebody had just turned on a switch. He put the alcohol down. He sat still and he ate a meal. And this man was demonized. I had no idea. He was just as loved as anyone else in that village. But I had already made up my mind about him. I assumed not this guy. 
we came for the well-behaved people in the village, not not this guy who tries to take our things and and dis, and bring disruption. We didn't come for this guy. My mind was already made up, and and I had assumed that 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 this guy was beyond us. But in that moment, I was proven wrong. I was proven that that God could do the impossible that God could bring transformation even in moments and in people that we think are unchangeable. See, as the kingdom breaks in, it sparks transformation in our lives, in our relationships, in our neighborhoods. There are countless stories of God meeting people in supernatural ways which result in outcomes that thought this was impossible. And in this story, Jesus is preparing his disciples by expanding their imagination. He says, you're impressed with this fig tree. You're going to see people healed. You're going to see people reconciled. You're going to see the furthest from God come near and the kingdom touch the darkest of places. This is what God does. His supernatural power restores people to himself. It restores people to each other. And, and, and all of this brings about a more flourishing community. See, God is after heaven on earth, and we should be too. And when we do not see it, let us not be people who shy away and think, well, it is what it is. No, let us be people who are engaged in the power of the Spirit, who follow God's lead and remember that anything can happen, that the impossible is possible as we open ourselves to him and as he does the work. See, when this pandemic, while we're in this pandemic, we may be asking ourselves, how can we experience this type of transformation in crisis? How can, we're not meeting as a church, we're not meeting physically, and the truth is it may not happen within our church walls but in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our conversations, in our intimate workplaces. Transformation becomes possible as we open ourselves to the Spirit. And if we've made up our minds, if maybe we've closed God in and maybe we've put the lid on top and and have made up our minds, could we open ourselves to the fact that anything is possible, to the fact that, that mountains can be moved, to transformation. See, the, the kingdom isn't hindered by crisis. Rather, it becomes more available. And I want to see that. So, we trust God. We trust God's goodness. We receive His power. And we see transformation. As we go back into worship, I'd like us to take a moment to open ourselves to receive God's power. Maybe we've been hesitant and we need to be reminded of God's goodness. He wants to remind us. He wants to show us. Or if we're exhausted, he wants to pour his power out over us, in us, and strengthen us. Or maybe we've been feeling discouraged, a bit overwhelmed, And because of the way things are, maybe we've been feeling a little bit uninterested. Let's allow him again to remind us of who he is and what he can do, even in the midst of crisis. 
And so to end, I would like to read this prayer over us. It is by a, a woman in New York. Her name is Cole Arthur Riley, and she runs an Instagram account called Black Liturgy. And she wrote this prayer, which I'd like to pray over us. Fierce God, would you who overturned the tables and cursed the fig tree remind us that your character includes disruption? Would you release us from the bondage of complacency and grant us spirits marked by courage and belief in the dignity of all creation? knowing when to make trouble in defense of the kingdom and its approaching shalom. Let ours be a holy mischief. Amen. When peace like a river Oh